Lord, as we look at your word, I pray, God, that we would have ears to hear. Lord, I pray we'd have eyes to see. And Lord, I pray we would have an understanding of how to look at our circumstances. Lord, thank you that your word is filled with your promises. And that all the promises in the scripture are yes in Jesus Christ. I pray, God, we'd receive those promises today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, if you'd open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. This morning, we're looking at a message entitled, How Does the Gospel Teach Me to Look at My Trials? How does the gospel teach me to look at my trials? You know, so many of the challenges we face as Christians is to navigate in light of the truth of God's word when it comes to suffering and it comes to difficulty within our life and experience as Christians. And so I want you this morning to think about that because we're going to be reading here in 1 Peter chapter 1. I wonder how many times uh, you've ever been lost in the woods somewhere. You ever been lost in the woods? That may be a random thing to ask. Uh, but if you ever have, that, that's a very scary predicament. Um, and, and one thing that, that typically happens, I, I was reading a story a few weeks ago, not weeks, but months. The kids were doing a science experiment, the younger kids, and they were looking at how to use a compass. And, and you know, I was never, uh, my dad was an Eagle Boy Scout, but I did not get that honestly from him. And uh, I've never been accused of being an Eagle Scout. And, and so with a compass, you've got to understand how to navigate because what can happen? I was reading a story about a, a lady named Amanda Eller. She was a lady that was a physical therapist that was in Hawaii. And she got lost for 17 days in the dense endless inland forest of Maui. She was on a three-mile hike, and it turned into 17 days. She set out on the hike without a cell phone, without food, or with water, and by the time she was discovered, she had severe sunburn, leg injuries, didn't have her shoes, and she was in a mess. And the one thing that can happen if you've ever got lost in the woods is that you realize that sometimes your eyes will trick you as to the way that you think you ought to navigate. And one of the challenges in life as a Christian and one of the necessities of preaching the gospel to ourselves is that when we go through difficulty, adversity, and trial, often what we see, we see fleshly in a perspective that disagrees with the promises of God. And what we need is to submit to the truth of Scripture to navigate safely through our circumstances. This morning, what we're going to do starting out is just read the text in 1 Peter chapter 1, I remember what might be considered a corny way of titling 1 Peter and 2 Peter, but it was effective because I've, learned, I've remembered it for the last 30 years. But I had a Bible professor at Bryan College. He said, when you go to 1 Peter, it refers to pain with a purpose. Pain with a purpose. 2 Peter is poison in the pew. Poison in the pew. I've always remembered that. And pain with the purpose so that the intention of the Apostle Peter, as he writes these dear Christians, is for them to understand how can they process, how can they interpret their suffering in light of God's salvation in Christ. 
It's important that we see it. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As we look at this text this morning, what I want to look at with you is five lies we are tempted to believe in the midst of suffering. Five lies we are tempted to believe in the midst of suffering. And I want to say this as we get started. These may not be lies that you're tempted to believe. These are often lies that I hear Christians are tempted to believe in in counseling. They're lies that I've heard others say. These may not resonate, but what we're going to do with each lie is we're going to counteract it with what the truth of God's word says. So my challenge to you today is not to focus on the lies, it's to focus on the truth. Focus on the truth, but I pray that you would see that it is imperative as a Christian to preach the gospel to yourself when it comes to the adversities and the challenges and the trials in life as a Christian. The first lie that we are tempted to believe. My trial demonstrates a lack of God's love and goodness towards me. My trial demonstrates a lack of God's love and goodness towards me. But what we see in 1 Peter is the truth that God has demonstrated his love for me in the cross of Jesus Christ. Have you ever been tempted to doubt the goodness and the love of God? Have you ever been in a situation where you begin to just think, how could God be good and bring me through this situation? How could God be good? How could he be loving and I'm still experiencing this, or I'm facing this, or I'm brought to this. What we have to do in the midst of life is we have to submit to the truth of God's word, and we have to preach the gospel to ourselves when we're tempted to doubt the character of God. I tell you, it's, it's, it's important that we develop a theology of suffering before we get into the trial, not once we get in the trial. And, you know, when we look at the book of James, we see that we're either in a trial, we're coming out of a trial, or we are about to go into a trial. 
And it's so significant that we live and we trust in who God is, that we walk with God. And when we then go through suffering, we're able to draw from what we've learned about the character and the righteousness of God. I've seen so many times where people were not walking with Christ, and then they got in the midst of an adverse situation and in the midst of a crisis, and then they seek to run. And, and by the grace of God, he does drive us to himself in the midst of suffering, and we thank him for his faithfulness, but we see the necessity to understand a theology of suffering. But notice how we can stand. First Peter has written to people that are suffering, and he opens up the letter and he opens it up filled with these truths of the gospel. And if you look with me, verses 1 through 5, he's speaking about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And then he turns it. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You see, an understanding of God's work for us in Jesus Christ is pivotal if we are going to have a proper interpretation of suffering. If we don't recognize how this is the foundation of interpreting the trials of life, we are going to be led astray by the deception of our flesh in conformity to the world. But notice some of the truths that pop out. Uh, we could make this a series in and of itself. So today, we're going to have to just look at this at 30,000 feet as we go over this many verses. But one way that we can see the love of God for us in Jesus Christ as Christians is we're reminded here that Peter says to those who are elect exiles, in the midst of trial and pain, be reminded of God's intent towards you. Do you realize what it means to be the elect of God? So many times in the New Testament, when the writers are emphasizing God's election, it's emphasized in the midst of people that are being rejected by the world, people that are looked at as outcasts, people that are looked at as throwaways, people that are made fun of, people that are spit out literally by the world. But what does he say to them? He says, you are elect exiles. We are not rejected by God. He has chosen us. And if God has set his love on us from eternity past, he's not cast us out. I love how the truth of scripture, it's, it's like when you come into a family. If I go to your house, I don't know all the secrets in your family. But when you're a family member, you tend to know the secrets in the family. You tend to be able to sit at the table and there's certain things that are funny to you that wouldn't be funny to other people because you know the inside jokes of the family. You know the inside realities of the family. When you come in to be a child of God, all you may recognize is that you believed in Jesus Christ. You trusted in him by grace through faith, but then you come to understand the secrets of the family, that you are called by God. You've been chosen by God. Before you ever thought about making a choice to trust Christ, God had set his love on you in Christ in eternity past. And what does it reveal? It reveals to us that not only did the Father plan it, the Son accomplish it, but the Spirit apply it to your heart, but it helps you understand God's attitude towards you as his child. 
Another clue here of how we can see the love of God is God's disposition towards us as we think about the fact that it's a lie to think that God doesn't love me and is not good towards me. Where do we see his disposition towards us? Well, you see it several ways. Look at verse 2 at the end. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. You come before the holiness of God. It is phenomenal to hear the phrases grace and peace. Grace and peace. And then he gets another phrase here in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And we see the disposition of God towards us in Christ. Earlier, Tommy read to us. I want you to go over there with me. And I'm going to read it later on, but this is a passage. It's a really wonderful compliment. Even though Paul wrote this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and Peter writes this one, the Holy Spirit is the one who's the divine author working through them. In Romans 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. God has a disposition towards us, and it's not one of enmity. It's not one of wrath. It's one of grace, peace, and mercy. Why? Because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. This morning, have you trusted in Christ or are you depending upon yourself to be approved by God? All the religions of the world outside of Christianity emphasize what man needs to do in order to merit right standing before God And Christianity reveals that man can do nothing. Not only can man do nothing, man's unrighteous has no ability to please God, but it's only by faith in Jesus Christ. We we see this throughout the the letter of 1 Peter. If you look at 1 Peter 1, verse 20, look what it says. You're in the midst of suffering, and you begin to think thoughts that are contrary to the revelation of God It's imperative that you counteract those thoughts. Have you ever been in situations of life where you just get trampled by your thoughts that are coming in? You just get plowed down. There's so many times I can relate to that as a Christian where thoughts would bombard me, thoughts that were contrary to the wisdom of God, and I literally just took a default position and just got pulverized by my thoughts. But what do you do when you're going through trials and you're going through suffering and you don't understand how these things could happen to you as a person that is a child of God? What are you needing to do? You're needing to remind yourself of what is true and remind yourself of the gospel truths. Because what do we see in 1 Peter 1, verse 20? He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for what? The sake of you the sake of you, if you're tempted to interpret your circumstances and you begin to frame that God is not good in your heart, it's imperative that you run to the word of God to gain your bearings, to gain where you're at, to see how to live. 
You can see this throughout the letter of 1 Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. It says, For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He is your shepherd if you have believed on Jesus Christ. So we see that there's all of these clues here of the love of God. We are the elect of God. God's disposition towards us is clear, grace, peace, and mercy. It goes on and says he has rebirthed us. He has made us alive in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And what's amazing about chapter 1 is that we see that even when we're tempted to think wrong about the truth of our circumstances, we see that God's word reveals to us that he is optimistic about our future, And if he's optimistic about our future, we should be as well. What does it say here? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to what kind of hope? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we see, first of all, when we're tempted to doubt the goodness and the love of God, look to the cross of Jesus Christ. The second lie that I think is common. You know, Corinthians says there's no temptation that has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. When we're tempted to doubt the goodness of God, we may be tempted also in the midst of suffering to believe this lie. Number two, God is absent and unaware. But the truth that we see in 1 Peter and all through the scripture is God is infinitely aware of every detail of my life. We, we can look at this in a lot of different ways. But First Peter does highlight this, I believe, in, in a really incredible way. It shows this in, in a way that is unexpected. I, have you ever uh, thought you were all alone, but you weren't? I, you know, very few times do I come home and nobody's at the house. There's a lot of us. But occasionally, it's sort of nice. You go in, no one's home, and no one's home. And, and I, I was there one day, and I was like, you know, there's no one here. I can do whatever I want, do whatever I want. I can turn the TV on. I can lay on the couch. I can do whatever I want. And I was walking around and doing some things, and all of a sudden, I heard someone moving upstairs. And I'm a, I may be 6'5", but I'm a big scaredy cat. And I started thinking, who's upstairs? And it was Ellie. And I was like, where did you come from? And she says, I've been here the whole time. I think sometimes... As Christians, if we're not careful, if we rely on our fleshly perspective, we will be tempted to think that we are all alone when we walk through a crisis and we walk through pain. But we have to see the scripture promises and reveals to us that God is always present. When we look at verse 1, there, there's a word here that is, is foreknowledge, And it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, not to lose you here, but think with me. You can understand this. If you're reading out of the New American Standard, it doesn't read like that. It takes the word foreknowledge and it modifies the word chosen. 
Whereas the ESV takes the word foreknowledge and it uses it to speak of the whole situation of the readers. Now, now, now here's what I mean. The NAS says it like this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, that's used in other places by Paul, but I don't think that's what he's saying here. He seems to be using the word foreknowledge differently, not modifying the word chosen, but the word foreknowledge speaking about the condition of the readers. Now, again, listen to the ESV, and there's reasons grammatically to take it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. I'm sorry, go back. That was confusing to me. To those who are in elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I love what, what Grudem says here. Listen to this. He said, it is most natural to let according to the foreknowledge of God the Father modify the whole situation of the readers. They are chosen sojourners of the dispersion in Pontius Galatia according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now listen to what he says. This implies that their status as sojourners, their privileges as God's chosen people, even their hostile environment in Pontius, Galatia, and the surrounding areas were all known by God before the world began. All came about in accordance with his foreknowledge. And thus we may conclude all were in accordance with his fatherly love for his own people. Such foreknowledge is laden with comfort for Peter's readers." It's not just that God was aware that he had created them. It wasn't just that God was aware of his work for them in Jesus Christ. But the very habitation where they dwelled was mapped out by a sovereign, providential God who was fully aware not only of the timing of their life upon this earth, but of all the circumstances surrounding it in the hostile areas in which they lived. That's a personal God. You read this, and then it gets into another grammatical question. See, depending on how you take the word foreknowledge, if it's a modifier of chosen or if it's a modifier of the people he writes to, that actually depends on how you then translate the sanctification part. But I want to go on here, and not to belabor this, he goes on, he says, it is much easier again to see the phrase in sanctification of the Spirit as referring to the entire present status of Peter's readers. This allows the word to have its common sense in. Peter is saying that his readers, whole existence, as chosen sojourners of the dispersion, is being lived in the realm of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now listen to this. The unseen, unheard activity of God's Holy Spirit surrounds them almost like a spiritual atmosphere in which they live and breathe, turning every circumstance, every sorrow, every hardship into a tool for his patient, sanctifying work. 
when we're tempted to doubt that God is not present, we lose sight of the promises that are in God's word. God is infinitely aware where you are at this moment. God is not absent. You may be tempted to think as you seek to navigate through all the suffering that you're walking in to think otherwise, but when you come to the word of God, you read about the omnipresence of God. Colossians says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Psalm 139 is an amazing passage that speaks about the fact that God is aware of where you are. It says in verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Acts 17, the last one I'll read. Paul says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And as children of God, as he has determined not only our location, but the timing in which we live, he is infinitely aware of all the details of our life. And he uses all the details of our life in his sanctifying plan. We have to be reminded of the truth of God. Is God out to give me? Is God aware of me? Is God not good? Is God not loving? We have to run to the gospel because if we do not do that, our minds will be pulverized by thoughts that rather should be submitted to the lordship of Christ whereby we gain our bearings and we rest and we lean on the promises of God. Number three, another lie that's common. People start to think there's nothing good that can come out of this trial. But the truth that we read here is God sanctifies and grows his children through trials. We don't have time to unpack all of these phrases and words but if you look at the 30,000-foot picture, he, he begins to speak about trials. And immediately in verse 7, look what he says. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Now notice the next phrase. May be found to result in may be found to result in. And what does that give you a sense of, even at the first stage of observation, when you look at this passage, is that if we look at the trial through the perspective God gives in his word, we see a different outcome with the trial than when we look at it through our own fleshly eyes. If we back up and we get lower to the ground, and we try to start looking at observations in which Peter gives about trials. Let's go through these quick. In verse 6, we see that trials are temporary. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. It's all perspective, isn't it? 
The second reality of trials, they're necessary. Though now for a little while, if necessary. They're necessary, why? Because they're used by God in ways to fit his redemptive purpose. And and what is God's promise to every Christian in Romans chapter 8? That he would conform us into the image of his son. And God is faithful to keep his word and will bring those necessary trials in our life that will accomplish what he is faithful to promise. We see not only are they temporary and they're necessary, we see that they bring sorrow and affliction. And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved, distressed. The fourth observation about trials is they're multicolored. It says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. That, that, that word various is so interesting. It really does. It speaks of a multicolored trial. And, and what's fascinating is when we look at that word and we trace it through the New Testament, we find that that same Greek word is not only used of multicolored trials, but it's used of multicolored wisdom and it's used of multicolored grace. And I was thinking about this. It's like if God works according and he does work according to his revelation, he's like the divine painter who chooses the exact color for the canvas. But the colors he chooses for the canvas are matched brilliantly with the exact same color of his wisdom and of his grace to bring about his children through the trial. Fifth observation about trials is quickly, trials prove us genuine. They prove us genuine. uh, years ago, I worked at a camp for little kids in uh, Oregon, and I had a cabin of like uh, about 12 fourth graders. I needed counseling at the end of the week. The, uh, it was an amazing experience. <laughs> and, uh, but we had this uh, gold rush. We basically took all these rocks, and we spray-painted them gold, and we threw them in the creek. And the kids would get these big buckets, and it was like the gold, gold you know, they were digging for gold. It would be like, uh, now think about it. Those, that, those are just spray-painted rocks. And, and if we would have had like uh, somebody come in to test metals, they'd have laughed at those kids. These, these rocks aren't gold. But just imagine somebody really rich that had a heart for those kids at the camp and said, you know what, I'm going to buy a bunch of gold, and we're going to fill this creek with gold. And those kids get excited to see something that looks like gold and actually is gold. And they bring it and they put it in their buckets and we go up there and we get somebody who can test gold and we test those metals. The excitement of those kids when the reality is shown to them that their rocks are not just rocks, they're gold. When we go through a trial, do you realize that the grace of God takes his people through suffering? and seeks to demonstrate in their life the genuine nature of their faith, not just to the outside world, but the reality of his hand in their life to encourage them in the midst of the journey. They prove as genuine, but they also produce God's work. In the same phrase I read as we were looking at the 30,000-foot view, they may be found a result. You realize in Romans 5, He uses, Paul uses the word produce, produce. Same word that James uses in James 1 verse 3. 
speaking of trials. And it says in Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. In James chapter 1, verse 3, count it all joy, verse 2, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces. It's the word accomplishes. It's the word carries out. It's the word to bring about. That's what God accomplishes in our circumstances. So when we come to trials, we have to be careful to never think that there's nothing good that can come out of this misery. There's nothing good that can come out of this tragedy. There's nothing good that can come out of this adversity. And we have to run to the word of God and stand on the promise of God that God sanctifies and grows his children through suffering. The fourth lie that we see here, I think that is people believe life is hopeless. Life is hopeless. They look at their suffering and they think there's no reason to live. Life is hopeless, one suffering after another. But then we see the truth of the gospel in Christ. I have living hope. We're running out of time this morning, so let's just go quick. But, but look at the end of verse three or the, near the end. What does he say? We've been born again to what? A living hope. And this living hope needs life. A dead God can accomplish living hope. Christianity lives or dies with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it lives because Christ lives. People can't experience living hope apart from living life. And Jesus Christ gives his people living hope in the midst of adversity to fight against the thought that life is hopeless and looking at the temporary situations of life, no matter how painful they may be, but to look to the future and all that God has promised for us in Jesus Christ. He says in verse four, what kind of hope is there? This is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse five, who by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You see all these phrases that point to future hope. Hope not only of God's grace in the present, but hope of what God will do in the future. Hope that allows me to look off of the temporary and see the bigger picture, to get my eyes up, to get my head off the ground looking this way. And God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, lifts my chin. You remember David? When he was going through all the grief of all the things in his life, he said God was the one who raised his head, raised his head. And one of the beauties of the Christian life is that we are going to face adversity, but in the midst of the adversity, God is capable and enables us to get our eyes off of the temporary and onto the eternal. And we see the truths of the promises of God. He goes on in verse 7 may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is an amazing reality that, that one day we will receive a divine commendation. We will, we will receive rewards for that which Christ has done in us. And we will take those very rewards and lay them at the feet of Jesus. And then in verse 9, you see it over and over, obtaining the outcome of your faith. 
the salvation of your souls. We know in scripture that we have been saved. We are being saved and we will be saved. And we see again this hope, this hope, this hope. Fight against the lie that will tell you that these trials serve no purpose, that life is hopeless, but remember in Christ you have living hope. I like what uh, C.S. Lewis says. I came across this. He says, at present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all of the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. And we don't have to say God willing for those in Christ Jesus. First Peter says we will get in by the promise of Jesus Christ. Finally, last lie. I can't trust God, nor can I make it through this trial. It's too tough. The truth God's grace is sufficient in my weakness. Earlier, we saw God's disposition towards us in verse two, but I want you to see not only his disposition, but the grace, the practical side of this grace in day-to-day living. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And I want you just to briefly, as we get ready to close, look at 2 Corinthians 12. What do we learn about God's grace in the midst of weakness? Paul had a thorn in the flesh in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan harassed me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. As you go through adversity and trial and turmoil and hurt and pain, your flesh will tell you that there is no hope and you're not able to endure and there's no way you can stand and trust in the promises of God. But then you're reminded that God has a way of flipping the price tags. It's not through our own strength that we find power. It's in our weakness. It's in our weakness when we come to the end of ourself and we look to Jesus that his grace enables us. But look at verse five, look at verse five who by God's power are what? Being guarded through faith. I tell you, all my brothers and sisters that believe you can lose your salvation, they don't have a high enough view of salvation and the calling of God. Because what we see here is a manifestation that those who endure manifest that the spirit is in their life. You say, how? Well, look at the words again. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith? I was looking up some commentaries on this and and listen to these words. God's power protects us because his power is the means 
by which our faith is sustained. It goes on. We should not use this verse to deny that believers must maintain their faith until the end. Its function is to encourage believers with the truth that God will preserve their faith through sufferings and troubles of life. Faith and hope are ultimately gifts of God, and he fortifies believers so that they persist in faith and hope until the day that they obtain the eschatological inheritance. That's good news. You know what that means? There's a, there's a promise in here that, that when I am in a trial and I'm tempted to think that I can't even deal with the reality of the suffering to trust God, that God promises me not only grace in my life, but he promises me a gift of faith in the midst of the circumstances. He'll guard me through faith. The Holy Spirit is going to be faithful to his own, and the Holy Spirit will enable me with the very faith that is required to trust God. So this morning, when you're tempted to doubt God's love and goodness, look to the cross. When you're tempted to think God is absent and unaware, remember the word. He's infinitely aware of all. When you're tempted to think that nothing good can come out of your circumstances, preach the gospel to yourself that God sanctifies and grows his children through trials. When you're tempted to think that life is hopeless, remember and hold on to the promise that in Christ you have living hope. When you're tempted to think that there's no way you can endure, run to the promise that God's grace is sufficient in your weakness. And a little bitty book that you, I pray you read, Milton Vincent says it like this. More than anything else I could ever do, the gospel enables me to embrace my tribulations and thereby position myself to gain full benefit from them. For the gospel is the one great permanent circumstance in which I live and move. And every hardship in my life is allowed by God only because it serves his gospel purposes in me. When I view my circumstances in this light, I realize that the gospel is not just one piece of good news that fits into my life somewhere among all the bad. I realize instead that the gospel makes genuinely good news out of every other aspect of my life, including my severest trials. The good news about my trials is that God is forcing them to bow to his gospel purposes and do good unto me by improving my character and making me more conformed to the image of Christ. Preaching the gospel to myself each day provides a lens through which I can view my trials in this way and see the cause for rejoicing that exists in them. I can then embrace trials as friends and allow them to do God's good work in me. Would you bow your head? This morning, as we wrap up in prayer, it could be that you're here today and some of the lies that the gospel confronts could be lies right now that you're actually tempted to be thinking by. And this morning, the gospel's not only encouraging you, the gospel is reproving you, friend, possibly, and calling you to submit your will to God's and submit 
these very thought processes you may have embraced even over the course of recent days and submit them to the promises of God that are in Jesus Christ. You may be with us today and you have no hope for even looking at this framework because you're not a child of God. You've never embraced and trusted in Jesus Christ to be your salvation. Friend, the good news of the gospel calls out to you. Just like these precious people in Galatia and Bithynia, all these people that were outside of the promises of God but heard the good news of the gospel that Jesus died for sinners and they believed on Christ. They experienced forgiveness of sins. They were assured of his love. They were assured of hope in a future this morning. Would you believe on Christ, friend? Trust in him. If you don't trust in him, he will be your judge. You will stand in condemnation for eternity. But God came into this world to save sinners, not to condemn them. Look to Jesus Christ today. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you, God, for your promises. I pray, God, you'd help me in my own life. I know how many times that I've battled the wrong perspective when I was going through heartache and suffering. But Lord, I pray we would realize that we can stand on your truth, but daily we have to preach the truth to our hearts. And daily, Lord, when we're tempted to veer and tempted to go against the wisdom of God, I pray, O oh Lord, we would look to the promises that are yes in Jesus Christ, and we would see our circumstance not through the lens of our fleshly perspective, but we would see our circumstances through the lens of your good news in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.